Thank you, David and Janice. Of course, you know we dine at the table of the masters of the instruments every week, and we so appreciate your gifts and your willingness to use those gifts in worship. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18. We continue our sermon series from this 1 Samuel book, The Sour Song, 1 Samuel 18, 6-9. Who is it for you? For Cain, it was Abel. For Hannah, it was Peninnah. For Peninnah, it was Hannah. And for Saul, it was David. That person that you find yourself in constant competition against. No one ever declared, let the games begin. But somehow, in life, you looked up and found yourself in a race, a race against her, in a contest, a contest against him. Envy begins when we see someone else's happiness or success, and somehow we feel inside as if we are called into question. And then... Out of the hurt of our own wounded self-esteem, we seek to bring that other person down to our level by word and deed. They belittle us with their success, and so we should bring them down a notch to their desired level. Well, full-blown envy. In short, it's dejection, disparagement, and destruction. You're not above it. No one is. The apostles of Jesus, the 12, found themselves caught up in competition against each other. And then I know if the apostles are guilty, then I must surely be guilty. And well, if I'm throwing in the apostles, then probably throws you in too. Disciples argued over who would be greatest when Jesus set up his kingdom. Why, James and John jockeying for position. Oh, we want to be promised we'll sit at the right and the left hand of your kingdom when it comes. Jealousy even amongst the 12 disciples. Luke says it this way. And an argument arose amongst the disciples as to which one might be the greatest. An argument amongst those called by Jesus, especially called the inner 12, about which one of them amongst the 12, what would the ranking be? Who would be Jesus' favorite? Then who would be next? And why, when he comes into his kingdom, why, there'll be a chair to the right and to the left. And, well, who will get those positions? Peter Tuhi, professor of Classics, the University of Calgary, constructs an entertaining argument for jealousy being the wellspring of a much greater part of our emotional lives than we have ever cared to admit. A greater part of our literature than we've ever cared to read. A great part of our law as it is encoded. Our daily existence, says the professor at the University of Calgary, is driven by envy or jealousy or somewhere between the two. In other words, 
our daily lives are caught up in jealousy and envy in all that we say and all that we do. The Bible really does have a lot to say about envy. Mark 7, Jesus says that envy, like malice and deceit and slander and arrogance, come from inside a person and make a person unclean. So Jesus says your envy makes you unclean. Or 1 Corinthians 13, that beloved passage about love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. Love is one thing. Envy is the opposite, Paul is saying. Or in Galatians 5.21, Paul says that envy is a deed of the flesh like drunkenness or carousing or idolatry or sorcery. We don't see it that way because idolatry and sorcery seem like outward sins and our envy is awful private, isn't it? It's awful green on the inside and no one else sees it. Jesus' brother James agreed that envy was a capital sin when he said, For where you have envy and selfish ambition, you find disorder and every evil practice. You let a room be filled with envy, says the brother of Jesus. You let a room be filled with self-seeking ambition, and then you'll have every sort of evil breaking out in the midst. Of envy. In fact, I thought about it, and I think perhaps the good professor, too, he is correct. In fact, I think that I could write an article arguing that the Bible is a collection of stories about envy. Have you ever thought of the Bible that way? A collection of stories about envy. Don't think so? Adam and Eve, everything was well until they actually envied God's knowledge, right? The very next story in the Bible, Cain envies Abel, and we have the what? First, murder. Joseph's brothers, he struts around like a peacock, and his brothers envy his coat of many colors. And then we have the story of Korah and Dathan and Abiram envied Moses, and because of that envy, the earth itself opened up and swallowed them. How serious is envy? Well, God calls the earth to open up and swallow the envious upon occasion. Indeed. Why, Rachel envied Leah. Leah envied Rachel. Hannah envied Peninnah. Peninnah envied Hannah. And today we are up to Saul and David. And I've already given you the apostles. Maybe someone could write the article. The Bible is the collection of stories of the destruction of of envy. It's that prevalent indeed. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 27 that it is because of envy that he's being delivered up for crucifixion. Jesus in Matthew even interprets his own crucifixion in light of the sin of the envy of those around him. It is because of envy, Jesus says, that I am delivered up to, to the cross. So, from the first story of creation to the central story of the cross, envy is woven in the pages of our text and 
great amount. Well, I want to say a few things about envy. First of all, envy will rob you of joy. Envy will rob you of joy. Well, look at 1 Samuel chapter 6. And it happened as they were coming, when David returned from killing the Philistine, that would be Goliath, that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines. Now, I want you to notice whom they went out to meet. Went out to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Saul became very angry, for the saying displeased him, and he said, They've ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they've ascribed thousands. Now, what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul looked at David with, some translations say, a jealous eye. Mine says, with suspicion from that day now, as you're reading through 1 Samuel, as a reader, you might be thinking, what a day. It's a great day. The army of Israel, which had been a hair breadth away from defeat for lack of courage, was not marching home in disgrace or dishonor, but because of the valor of the shepherd boy, the youngest son of Jesse, David. Well, David had brought down the giant with a slingshot and one smooth stone. And Israel's army had been gained that never-to-be-forgotten victory against a perennial enemy, the Philistines. The Philistines, when their hero had gone down, they turned tail and fled in terror, demoralized by the loss of their champion. And Saul's troops, now energized by the fact that Goliath was down, whipped soundly the Philistines. And that moment of triumph, the populace comes marching out. The women are singing for joy. Their towns will not be pillaged. Their children will not be taken captive, but rather they, they gather around and proclaim the metal and pluck of their heroes. And Saul, I see him, he's soaking it in, and he's delighted in the song until, what did they just sing? How does that song go? Did, did I hear? His benign smile turned to fury. The louts were applauding, not the King Saul, the commander-in-chief, but the stripling David, the young sap. A mere boy was getting the glory due to the king. And after this moment, Saul's life is encapsulated, it is captured, it is permeated with envy. He's paranoid. Even as David played the soothing music, the sounds of music, Saul hurls his spear at David, trying to pin him to the wall. God grants David escape. Envy robs us of joy. One lady went to see her counselor. She was honest. She said that she and her husband had designed their new home and moved in just six months ago, and everything was great, great until they went to a party at the Bentleys. 
I fell hopelessly in love with their house, the lady says, and now I can't stand our house. But your house is brand new, said the counselor. You just built it. You designed it exactly like you wanted it. I know, she said, but when I saw what the Bentleys had done with their four-season porch, I realized that ours should have been exactly like their porch. And now I hate my house, she kept saying. Our new house was an awful mistake. We never should have done it. I tell myself over and over again that those are ridiculous feelings, but, and I should get over it, but I just can't stop thinking about it, and I've been crying a lot lately. Joy, gone, cause of envy. Envy causes us to compare and then to conclude causes us to compare what we have compared to others and then we conclude that we are we're miserable we compare our gifts our talents our possessions we compare everything about ourselves with somebody else why do we do that now i know that facebook has its place i know that but a variety of studies have come to the conclusion that being fixated on Facebook can actually damage your emotional well-being, make people feel more depressed and lonely. What, what they discovered is that passive users, that is you that I call creepers out there, <laughs> passive users... Not the posters. The posters are actually safe in the study. It is, uh, I don't want to let others know, but I just want to see about you folks out there. The creepers, my kids would say. It is the creepers that are damaged by Facebook. Why? It, it seems simple enough. Everybody on Facebook tends to portray themselves in flattering ways and post all these wonderful things way more than they say anything negative. In fact, 52% of those who use Facebook use it to post positive things about themselves and their family, and only 2% ever say anything negative about themselves or about their family on Facebook. And so as we look at these seemingly charmed lives of everybody around us, well, the passive Facebook users feel that in the comparison, they conclude they don't measure up. And we drop in our feel-good, our, our emotional feeling. This is in psychology today. And it says, even though you feel worse off after you log off, it's addicting and you'll still go back to creep some more until you feel worse about yourself again. We compare... And we conclude, and we have no joy. What did the ladies sing? Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. But Saul didn't hear it right, did he? He heard Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his ten thousands. In fact, there's some 
linguistic scholars who argue that the song was never even meant to be a comparison. It's like a second stanza, you see. You celebrate the thousand, then you celebrate the ten thousands, and they're both uh, an acclamation of the army under the leadership of Saul. There was nothing sour about the song to start with in its original form. There's an and there. But Saul heard a but there. Saul has slain his thousands, and our good king has led his warrior to slay, to, to slay 10,000. That's the way it could have been heard, but it wasn't. It was heard as a sour song. Saul, at that moment, should have been overcome by joy. His army was on the brink of defeat, and no one could defeat the giant. And David stepped up on the king's behalf, and under his command... And yet Saul compared and concluded, and envy robbed him of his joy. It, it robs us two ways. First of all, it robs us over the ability to rejoice with the accomplishments of another. It robs us of the joy over the accomplishments of another, over the good fortune of another, over the possessions of another. Envy directs us in various directions every day and in every way, and sometimes it comes under the guise of a caring, egalitarian heart, and, and sometimes it empowers a push for political powers to level the playing field on our behalf, and we might ask ourselves honestly, is it really envy over, envy over those who have versus my really caring for the have-nots, what motivates my political direction? We want the government to take away more from the haves so we'll feel better. The have-lesses will feel better, you see? Envy robs us of the ability to rejoice with others. Secondly, another way it robs our joy we never take pleasure in what we ourselves already have. It robs us the joy to take pleasure in what we ourselves already have. All of life is about comparison, isn't it? It doesn't matter what culture or what goods we're speaking about. People might say that they are proud of being rich, clever, or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer more clever and better looking than those around them. You see the difference? When we compare, we are robbed of the joy of what we already have. Someone driven by envy the instant that he obtains something sought after, he begins to disparage the thing. It no longer brings him or her joy because now they have it and they envy something else, like the lady with the new house. It was a wonderful thing on a blueprint, but once constructed, it was I already have, and now I need something else. When you're envious or jealous, you can never, ever enjoy what God is already given to you. Envy is always other-directed, isn't it? It always makes us look at the flashy toys or success or, well, accolades of others. It makes us look. It makes us covet. It makes us want what others already 
thus it robs us the ability to enjoy what we already have. Why are we so taken by the talents, gifts, and attributes and possessions of others that we don't see how God has made us ourselves? We spend more time worrying about the giftedness of others than we do maximizing the gifts that God has given to us. You see that? If I only worried about the gifts that God had given to Howie and not try to be anybody else or compare to anybody else's gifts, I would do so much more for the kingdom of God rather than trying to take account and compare my gifts with yours. Envy robs us of the joy of the gifts that we already have. Celebrate the gifts that God has given to you. Don't allow envy to rob you of being useful for God and his kingdom. Secondly, I want to say, have you ever thought about this? Envy delivers absolutely nothing. Envy gives you nothing. I can't say that about hardly any other sin. Lust delivers pleasure for a little while. So does gluttony. We've all been there. Pride gives you this euphoria of preeminence for a moment till God brings you down. And anger is a sweetness of revenge. And greed gives you, however false, a sense of security. And sloth lets you lie on the couch with remote control, at least for the evening. But congregation, envy won't give you anything. It delivers absolutely nothing. Envy has this stench of death about it. It seems to creep up unbidden from some filthy gutter in the depths of my soul, and it grabs us around the throat, and it squeezes tight, and you taste the bitter poison and envy in the back of your mouth. It has claws, too. You're usually a kind and decent and caring person. You might be shocked by the nasty thoughts your mind conjures up when envy strikes, and you might not even admit these bleak fantasies to anyone else, much less yourself, but something inside you wants to take what the envied person has, and you want to see that person fall just a notch or maybe even two. Uh, the Germans call it shameful joy. Schadenfreude, taking joy in the fall of another. And the third thing I want to say about envy, envy ruins relationships. It ruined the relationship of Cain and Abel, to be sure. It ruined the relationship of Jacob and Esau. It ruined the relationship of Joseph and his brothers, cast him in the well because of the coat. Shall I go on? If you are envious, it will ruin your relationships. If you are jealous, it will ruin your relationships. Instead of seeing other people in our our lives as a gift from God to be enjoyed and celebrated, we begin to see other people in our lives as a component of competition against ourselves. They are threats to our power and our position and our prestige. 
Someone once said the first thing that two young ladies meeting each other do is cast their eyes looking for what is ridiculous or faulty with the other. The second thing they do is flatter each other to cover up the true feelings of looking for the ridiculousness. Men, of course, no different. Envy robs us of relationships with those around us. What could have Jacob and Esau been if they weren't competitors? What would have happened if Joseph and his brothers had a different kind of relationship? It robs us because it devours our own self-esteem and doesn't allow us to see or celebrate the good in others. And we can't risk accepting or loving or applauding or celebrating because it might make us feel badly about ourselves. Have you ever noticed that we're most envious of those whose gifts are closest to ours? Hmm. If you're a musician, you compare and envy other musicians. If you are a preacher, you compare and envy other preachers. If you're a realtor, you count signs in the front yards. You see? I don't care about somebody who has a completely different gift set than my gift set. It's a guy that comes close to my gift set that threatens me. You see? Here's the reality. You and I will only give to God an account of what we did with what God has gifted us. I can only preach as well as I'm gifted. I can only pastor as well as I'm gifted. I can only administrate as well as I'm gifted. And that's all that God ever expects of Howie, you see? And if each of us would do the very best with what God has given to us and really celebrate that others would do the very best with what God has given to her or to him, even if what God has given to her or him exceeds what we're able to do, let's celebrate with him or her that like we, they are maximizing the unique gift set that God has given to them. And then, if I focus on doing the best with what I have, I can rejoice when you do the best with what you have. Envy. Adam and Eve, Cain, Jacob, Joseph's brothers, the apostles, me, and yes, probably you. Will we hear the sour song when the ladies sing and dance with the tambourines? Or we hear the joy and the victory that God is working through his people, even if his people other than we ourselves? Let us pray. Oh, God, help each one of us to celebrate with those in our lives as they have victories, to not be threatened, to not be envious or jealous, but to rejoice.
Father, when I, I look at so many characters in your word that were envious and such strong warnings against envy, I realize it's an all-consuming thing. If it's envy that caused Jesus to be crucified, I don't want any part of that evil. God, give us your grace and your peace.